Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. In today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Adolf Reed Jr., a professor from the United States. We discuss identitarianism, race reductionism, solidarity, and the path towards an effective left. Hello, welcome back to Fucking Cancelled. Welcome back to Fucking Cancelled. We are joined today by Dr. Adolf Reed. Um who is a professor emeritus professor emeritus sorry i wasn't sure how you say emeritus <laughs> of political science um from the university of pennsylvania and also we're huge fans of adolf reed's work i'm sure that um listeners have heard us talking about him so it's a huge honor to have you on the pod thanks for being here well thanks for having me i'm really happy to be here so first of all, just to get us started, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your work? Well, I mean, I've, um, yeah, what to say. Um, I was a political science professor for almost 40 years. Um, I've been, um, I came out of the 1960s, right? Um, so I was one of those. I came into politics actually. Uh, through the Black Power Movement and the anti-war movement, but I was also one of those people who kind of, for me, left politics was inheriting the family business, so I never felt that I came by it honestly. My father was also a left political scientist, uh, and my son is a mm-hmm. historian who's been on fucking canceled. Uh, I love the title. Of each <laughs> um but yeah, I, you know, I'm just a guy, right? I, what I've been around, I mean, I've been committed to working class politics for for probably longer than I can remember. Uh, and um, maybe what some people would find of interest was in the 90s, I was part of a of an effort to uh, that created and tried to build an independent working class political party in the U.S. based in the trade union movement called the Labor Party. Um, and I've been doing that work, uh, you know, for as long as I can remember. And uh, yeah, I do journalism stuff too. I've I've, I've had uh, columns in the Progressive magazine, uh, the Village Voice, um, the, uh, the New Republic, and I just this week started a column in the Nation, which uh, it's kind of weird. Nobody thought that they would touch me, but uh, but I mean, so far so good. I mean, people seem 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 happy with it, and. Uh, um, I guess for me, the question has always been the same. It's been like, uh, you know, uh, the animating question for the Labor Party, the animating question for our podcast. In fact, it's a tagline of our podcast, classmatters.org, classmatterspodcast.org, is that we were the place where you come to consider what the country would look like if it were governed by and for the working class, right? and that's kind of where we are. Uh, and that's what I've been trying to do for as long as I can remember. Well, when when my son and I were driving to Montreal, actually, we took a road trip in September. Um, he asked me at one point why 
why I keep doing it with all the you know yelling from from identitarians and from the right wing and all the ground we seem to be losing. And all I could say was, well, what else would I do? <laughs> right? What else is there to do? Right? I mean, I'm sure a lot of your listeners understand this. Like, it's no great heroic thing. It's just that. Um, that, that there are some lines that you cross, right? Some thresholds that you cross where you can't cross back over again, right? There's a yeah. transformation in vision um, so that you can't quite see things as, as naively as you, mm. uh, mundanely as you might have before. Uh, so every now and then, like there was an incident last, last week, I read some dumb shit uh, about... Uh, I don't know, some new uh, anti-racist entrepreneurial venture. And I thought for a minute, gee, I wonder if it's time now, if if it's too late for me to have an epiphany and go <laughs> to Oak Brothers so I can have a better quality of life in my retirement. But it's probably too late. No, no dice, eh? <laughs> um, and, um, well, okay. I mean, that's the that's a great segue into our into our first uh, question for you, um, Adolf. Your because your perspectives on anti racism um, have been really important for us. I mean, it's a major topic of your research. Um, many people struggle really hugely to understand your points about this topic, um, but we think that they're really important. So, like Taryn and Barbara Fields uh, wrote that the the first principle of racism is the belief in race. Um, and you've written that liberal or identitarian anti-racism um, essentializes ascriptive identity, right? Um, can you talk to us about this? What does this mean? Sure. Well, um, ascriptive identity is actually was coined by a colleague and good, good, good friend of mine who moved on from it because it's so un, uh, unwieldy. Uh, but ascriptive identities are identities that are assigned to you based on what you supposedly are. Mm-hmm. Or who you supposedly are, like instead of what you do, right? Um, and I've argued that um, that ideologies of ascriptive inequality—that is, you know, ideologies of naturalized hierarchy based on what groups supposedly are—which comes down to just those stories that people or, or that emerge um, and they kind of stick. Well, when they connect with the interests of the dominant classes in the society. Uh, but those identities get projected onto groups of people at, as not even necessarily just a divide and conquer strategy, but also as, as a way of diverting attention from, from the roots of actual existing inequality in capitalist social reproduction, social and economic re- reproduction. Um, and from that perspective, all ideologies of ascriptive inequality are like points on a single curve, right? Gender, race, uh, um, um, sexual orientation. Um, well, one of the things I like uh, in teaching about the eugenics movement is that, you know, that was the moment when um, ascriptive ideologies were uh, uh, were where, where where the foundation in um, phenotypic narratives, right, or in, in, mm-hmm. uh, in um, not narratives about how people look, was was as loose as it's ever been, right? Uh, because race, because uh, the equivalent of race was everywhere, right? 
So feeble-mindedness, for instance, was a racial classification in the heyday of, 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 of the eugenics movement. Um, so yes, and from that perspective, um, I certainly agree with the field sisters. And by the way, like if any of your um, of the audience are in New York City or 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 or, or close, Barbara Fields and I are doing an event at the Columbia Journalism School on uh, March 1st from 6 to 7.30, I think. Um, it's a conversation about my, my book, The South. Um, but the field sisters are absolutely correct that, uh, that, that the essence of racism is the belief that races are real. Mm -hmm. and, and I've taken to saying that more and more bluntly, right? I mean, that, that, that belief that there are characteristics that racial groups have, and I mean, when you think about it, Blacks in America are a population larger than the total population of Canada. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to imagine an adjective that would describe the, the belief that all or all right-thinking Black people believe or want the same stuff than racist. But that just seems, and, and 60 years ago, that, that belief would have been understood to be racist. But now what's happened is that um, anti-racism under ne neoliberalism, um, at, at, at least, has come to do the same kind of work that racism does for people who are uh, recognized as reactionaries at this point. So is that helpful? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so to build on that, um, let's talk about race reductionism. Um, so you have written about race reductionism and how the category of race comes to stand in as an explanation for material conditions, which could be better explained in other ways. Um, can you explain what you mean by race reductionism and give us some examples of how it operates? Oh, okay, sure. Um, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, race reductionism is is most fundamentally the, 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 the belief that race is the primary motive force in history, right? Uh -huh. Which, by the way, is a view that was generated and shared by uh, you know the great racists of the late nineteenth and early twentieth century. Yeah, it's kind of bizarre, right? But, but to see um, Madison Grant's ideology being repackaged as pro-black and Afro-pessimism. Uh, but so that's basically what race reductionism is. Um, I've I've noticed for and and have argued for some time that. Several of the prevailing discursive tendencies in uh, politics here and alas there and much of the rest of the world now because uh, American so mm -hmm. soft imperialism is just as um, as effective as, 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 as hard imperialism. Um, but, but for instance, the focus on racial disparities mm -hmm. as the most meaningful metric of, of, of injustice. Well, when you back up just a half step and think about it, right? What the view that disparities, or uh, by race or gender or whatever other ascriptive category, uh, you know, disparities or the disparate distribution of good stuff and bad stuff within the society, uh, you know, on the basis of those categories, leaves the fundamental organizing principles of the society intact. In, in so that so so one of my favorite bugbears, for instance, is the wealth gap, right? Mm -hmm. So that from if the real problem 
uh, of um, inequality or of economic inequality in in the United States or in Canada is um, the disparate distribution of wealth and income uh, on the basis of race or even gender. The punchline is that under and it's most conspicuous under neoliberalism, which which is impelled by a logic of intensifying inequality right across the board within the society, that uh, on the disparitarian principle, you can uh, a society in which one percent of the population controls ninety percent of the resources could be considered just or unobjectionable if. 12% of it were black, 14% Hispanic, or half women, right, but whatever. And that's one of the ways you can see how that there's a kind of left in form, right in essence character to, to race reductionist politics. Like another is, and I apologize, I don't, but I don't know the figures for Canada, but I know in the US, uh, 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 with respect to the so-called racial wealth gap, more than 70% of the racial wealth gap is between the richest 10% of blacks and the richest 10% of whites. Right. The bottom 50% of blacks and, and, and whites have exactly the same amount of wealth, which is zero. So, right. Um, right, so I've talked about this to um, black union groups too, and said, look, you know, the first thing you can see is that this has got fuck all to do with us, right? Right, I mean, this is a program for making rich black people richer, for closing the gap right, right between uh, the richest black people and their white white counterparts, and and that's why so much of it comes down to you know how Beyonce got gypped out of uh, out of winning as many Grammys as she should have won, uh, or how Ava DuVernay got gypped out of an Academy Award winning. Right, it's got nothing to do with us, right? Um, and 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 to be moreover, as my colleague and good friend Merlin Chalquanian and I argued in a piece we did in 2012 in, in the Socialist Register on uh, um, disparities discourse, um, that the point of disparities discourse isn't even to uh, produce causal accounts of the sources of the inequality. Right. Uh, uh, the point of disparities discourse is a struggle over the label we should call the inequalities by. And it's much more about preserving race as, um, as, as, as a principal explanation than it is about addressing uh, actual inequalities. Right. Like trying to find ways to use race to explain like almost everything that's right. going on. Right. Um, one thing that you got into. You may not even need the Sorry. Well, uh, oh, so you may not even need the almost, right? Just explaining everything that's going. On. <laughs> right, right. right. One thing, that, one thing right. that you got into um, some trouble for uh, was trying to talk about COVID um, through and 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 pushing back on race reductionist and disparitarian understandings of like the sort sort of the gap between um, the rates of death of COVID in the black population and the non-black population in the U.S. Um, do you want to quickly run us through uh, what your argument was and why you got into trouble? Oh yeah, sure. Well, well, I got into trouble. I got into trouble because um, uh, because there were a lot of jerk offs, like in the New York City, what the DSA chapter. Uh, but, Good answer. Uh, 
But the, um, uh, but I've been arguing that, well, well, um, yeah, you guys may uh, you recall that at the beginning of COVID, that there were early reports of, of what looked like racial disparities and incidents of, 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 of death and infection. And the fundamental problem there, and like this is a problem that recurs over and over, and there was just, uh, you know, by the way, and I might respond to this in my nation column, uh, a big buzz about um, a report that found that um, that um, incidents of infant mortality and, and other prenatal and you know, neonatal problems are greater among rich black women than they are among poor white women, right? Uh, and I think the data show something quite quite different, like, like among other things, that there's a very substantial difference between uh, the, the rates of these problems among rich black women and poor black women. But another facet of the study was it compared US across the board to Sweden. And, and the finding was that none of those disparities by class or by race, were, and there the proxy would be foreign born versus Swedish born. The, those disparities don't exist in Sweden. So it has everything to do with the kind of healthcare system we have. Right. right? But, um, but anyway, those, so the COVID stuff um, came down to this, right? There are only two possibilities, right? Either um, blacks are biologically different from, from whites, right? Or there are social factors. Right. And, and my argument was that, look, that there's too much ambiguity in the race reductionist argument and, and, and it's ambiguity that opens to really frightening possibilities. Because mm -hmm. right? we all know the historical precedents, right? If you think there's a population that's intrinsically defective, well, when the pendulum is swinging in one direction, you can toss some welfare at them or whatever. When the pendulum swings in the other direction, then it makes sense to exterminate Right, like we've been there, uh, we, uh, you know, we've been there before, and yeah. could be there again. But my argument was, well, if it's not a biological explanation, right, then racism doesn't really help us understand what what the mechanisms are, right? Right. And my argument was that you'd have to control for political economy, and and what makes the most sense to people who pay attention is that people of color were more likely to be infected um, because of, of the neighborhoods that they lived in and the kind of jobs that they did and the kind of transportation they had to use. Pardon me. And they were more likely to have underlying physical problems that were also connected with inadequate access to healthcare. Mm -hmm. so, so like you didn't need to have like a global, you know, devil theory about racism. It doesn't explain anything anyway. So what happened was some of my friends uh, in the New York, in one of the New York branches who had come from Philly, actually, uh, um, put together a program for me and Merlin Chalkanian, uh, my friend who was who, a public health professor, who was history and public health professor at Columbia, uh, and had been a grad student at Penn. 
and we did an article together. Like I did one article in Common Dreams, and we did one together in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, and we were going to do we, we were going to lead a discussion for the New York DSA chapter on a Sunday afternoon. And uh, what happened was there was a mutiny uh, among the identitarians uh, who finally the morning of the event um, demanded that we re reorient the event to a debate between what they described as my race reductionist views and their BIPOC socialist views. So, and like this was, you know, like 11 o'clock in the morning for an event that was supposed to start at two. It was also early enough in the days of Zoom that we weren't convinced that it wouldn't be possible for them to hack and uh, the Zoom bomb. And then so, so um, I mean, Merlin and I just said, yeah, fuck it, we don't need this. Why would we bother with this? This isn't really who we need to be talking to. Anymore. So that's how I got in trouble for it. But um, uh, but anyway, yeah. Um. So one of the things that we come up against a lot in our work is just sort of like who gets to claim to be a leftist, you know, and who gets, you know, called, well, we get called right wing all the time, even though we are very overtly talking about socialism. Um, and so this race reductionist identitarian politics that we've been talking about has sort of created, um, it's, it's like crowned itself as the leftist position, you know? And so people from within that are constantly um, criticizing those who are not within it and saying that they can't be leftists, even if they are very clearly being leftists. Um, and one thing that you have said that I always thought was really interesting is that you've described this politics as um, the left wing of neoliberalism. Um, so could you just talk a little bit about that and what you mean by that? Sure. Well, yeah, um, I, I'm going to start out first by saying that, um, yes, uh, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I mean something very specific by by a left, and and I wish I thought about this, but Mark, uh, my comrade Mark Mark Bedzik and I did an article in Socialist Register in 2015, uh, um, Crisis of uh, of the Left and Labor, um, and and if you can't find it, like I can send it to you, it's behind a paywall, but we we lay out a kind of pithy paragraph long. A construction of what we mean mean by left, and what right. it comes down to is um, a social force that has political capacity, right, uh, to try at least to affect the terms of debate in in ways that um, advance uh, um, um, the concerns of a broad working class, which is the vast majority of the population of the country, right, um, and by that standard. There is no left, right? There's no left that has the capacity to influence. Well, I mean, we what we put it like this. I mean, there's no left that has capacity, you know, to influence the enterprise wage in any industry, or like even to stop a redevelopment project in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. right? um, so, and so from that perspective, you know, that's one of the reasons I argue that people should stop calling themselves a left because there is no left. There are leftists and people with left aspirations. But to be a, a serious left, you got to have a meaningful social force that can intervene, right? Yeah. Um, and it's also got to be connected with 
social transformation in radically egalitarian directions. Um, why I say that um, identitarianism of its various flavors is the left wing of neoliberalism is precisely uh, in a relation to what I said a couple of minutes ago. Their interest isn't in altering the fundamental patterns of production and distribution of fundamental social relations. But their only beef is that um, identified groups get the short short end of the stick. So, right. so again, it comes back to this: like if, 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 I don't know what what the percentages are, but if twelve five percent of white people are filthy rich, and five percent of black people are filthy rich, or no, no, this is another example, and this is another plug, by the way, my good friend and comrade Walter Ben Michaels and I mm -hmm. have, have a book coming out um, in a couple of weeks called no, no Politics by Class Politics. And it's a collection of articles that we've done separately and together. And also like about a third, a quarter to a third of a book is, is, is a running conversation that's, that's new with Walter and me and Anton Yeager and Danielle Zamora, who who two young comrades, but, but, but in, in an article that's in that book, it's a, I think it's a concluding chapter of that book, an article that Walter and I did called The Trouble with Disparity, mm -hmm. is we take a look at, at the um, um, home, home healthcare aid industry, right? Um, and we came across a study that finds that you know black women and Hispanic women make less than white white men as home health aides, right? And that's true. Um, but if you round up, right, you, you've you've still got black and Hispanic women and white men all earning less than enough to live on. Yeah. Right. Um, so the real challenge should be to raise the wage rate for the entire industry to regulate it more, to socialize it, basically, right? Right. But this is the kind of debate that can't come up. So to that extent, I mean, uh, you know, from that perspective, the uh, um, um, you know the identitarian notion of of pursuing equality is a lot more like moving the deck chairs around on a Titanic, right? Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that's an adequate response. No, it is. Thank you. Absolutely, yeah. So many people who consider themselves leftists um, would absolutely deny that they're part of the left wing of neoliberalism, right? They they don't they wouldn't agree with your framing of this at all um why do you think that this politics has so successfully masqueraded as the left that it's sort of like like it's it's like replaced our idea of what the left should look like um and to, to replace it with its with its own image why do you think it's been so successful in that well that's a huge question uh, but a hugely important question too i mean i think a lot of things come together uh, you know, one thing is the ruling class likes it and they fund it, right? So, yeah, and, and and that's simplistic. That's not the whole whole story. Um, but somebody else mentioned, like this was on another podcast uh, a week or so ago, that um, um, yeah, caller mentioned something about the 
the um, demise of the red diaper baby. And funny, I never thought about that, even though I kind of was one. But what's happened is that so in the 60s, and this is one of the differences, like there were, you know, young people who had grown up in families, well, not just where they were on the picket line all the time, right? That's that that continues to happen, but for different stuff. But in families where it was understood that capitalism was our problem. Right. That struggle is a long-term issue, right? And and that organizing is is ultimately more about building relationships and broadening them than about running around with a bullhorn and a placard, right? Um, and as, you know, we've had 40 years of demobilization, not just here, but most of the West, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as fewer and fewer people come up with that kind of in, intuitive understanding of what politics is, and moreover. So I tell you, when my son was, what was he, 13, uh, um, I, one night um, I decided to watch a glut of music videos. So this was like Christmas 1984. So I guess he was 14. No, no, 13, uh, uh, 1983. Um, and by, by the time the night was over, uh, I thought, well, shit, this is going to be the end of vocal music, right? Because uh, the virtuosity of singers is going to be reduced to the packaging of the visual image. And I watched a chunk of Rihanna's halftime show at the Super Bowl. I thought, yeah, I was right, right. But, uh, but because the shit's dead now, right? And the fact that Beyonce has a career, right, kind of shows that too. But, but a similar thing has happened about politics, right? I mean, um, you know, first there was Beverly Hills 90210 and young people were getting their sense about what political engagement is from the student council right? I mean, races on that show. Uh, and then as what had had been a left, uh, you know, retreated more and more to electoralism, then, uh, and, and certainly from critique, um, systemic critique of capitalism, right? Which has been a problem across the post, post-war, post-World War II era, uh, and worse since Thatcher and Carter, basically. Um, Fewer and fewer people thought about have have thought that way about politics, and then by the nineties, uh, academic career paths start to open for mm. people who see their academic work as connected with this kind of identitarian politics, and then eventually see that academic work as a politics on, on right. its own, right? Yeah. Uh, which man, you talk about checking a safety catch on a revolver. But, um, and it's just gotten worse and worse. And then now, now we see like the merger of fact and fantasy. I mean, well, one thing I've often said is that, um, you know, we need to have, well, even as organizers, like we need to have, because, yeah, so part of political activism is like polishing turrets, right? You're trying to, uh, call a reality into existence partly by claiming it already exists, right? Yeah, we all do it. That's just part of what the enterprise is. You can't complain mm-hmm. about it. But we all need to have some place where we go, where we have to speak honestly, 
right? And admit we don't have anything and admit we're not speaking for anybody else and admit that we're doing smoke and mirrors, hoping that through spontaneous combustion or something like the smoke and mirrors will become a prairie fire, basically. But that's gone too. And what's taken the place of something like the party or the organizing cell or whatever is the NGOs and mm -hmm. foundations and Twitter and um, MSNBC. So the valid and also like the academic stuff. So the validation comes from sources that not only have nothing at all to do with with with, with what ought to be the left organizing project. Uh, and for the listeners, that is the scare quotes around left. Um, but in fact, comes from the other side. I mean, to me, it's like in 2008 when uh, people were, you know, kind of getting their panties wet over Obama. I guess I shouldn't say it. But when people were getting really excited over Obama, right, I, I pointed out, among other things, that, well, but you know, this guy got more Wall Street money than anybody else in, in the race. And the response to that was covering their ears going, no, 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 because they didn't want to hear it. Yeah. I think that if you're a progressive, right, and not just a fucking dilettante, then you would stop and ask, well, why why is he getting all that Wall Street money, right? Uh, are, is Goldman Sachs like ready to atone for, you know, I don't know if they had anything to do with slavery, but with what, what you know, for whatever bad stuff they did, of course not, right? And, and same thing, summer of George Floyd, right? Corporations were pumped in like in a span of weeks, close to $2 billion, probably more than $2 billion. Right, so Black Lives Matter and, and and all the other groups out there funding off as though they represented the uh, authentic up up you know, up up surge of the inner city oppressed. Why? Right. Why? Yeah. Um, in the foundation world now, right? I mean, they're funding this stuff, right? And they're funding it to the exclusion of funding anything else, right? Um, and in the academic world, uh, and it's true, uh, the fancier the institution, the more it's true that like these are the only positions that get filled or or get promoted. Um, and you have to ask why, right? Um, and and the simple answer is, well, they're not challenging capitalism, but mm -hmm. beyond that, it's they're actually diverting away from it. So. Yeah. In 2016, right, um, when, um, you know, after the presidential election, like all of a sudden, you know, the talking heads on MSNBC, led by Joy, Joanne Reed, but a lot of others, like uh, yeah, Nicole Hannah-Jones of, of the 1619 Project mm -hmm. and, and other people like that, were, have, have, have been asserting that referring to the working class is an attempt to apologize for white white workers racist. Right. So that means among other things though, right? And I haven't seen anybody else make this reference, but if working class is a synonym for white racism, then, then that means that blacks and Hispanics can't be working class. Right. And that's the other political work that yes. we're doing. And totally. we see this more and more too. So what blacks and Hispanics are supposed to get is fucking entrepreneurialism. Right. And and you and I'm sure many of your listeners know 
what a sham that is, right? Like a lot of it is what we would call down here like an independent contractor, mm-hmm. which means a worker with no rights. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but but they sell that to people as an opportunity to uh, you know to build self respect and and the prosperity gospel and all the rest of that stuff. Uh, and my son actually, I forget where he did this, um, but someplace not that long ago, uh, he was on a podcast, I think. And he went on a riff about um, entrepreneurialism. And he said, look, the reason that slavery expanded was middling uh, to semi-prosperous slave owners or plantation owners who were entrepreneurs, right? Right? It's entrepreneurialism that that drove expansion of slavery, right? Uh, So it's... So anyway, uh, but a, a friend just sent me, uh, you know, by the way, um, a day or so ago, a Wall Street Journal review of Nicole Hannah-Jones's, I think it's of, of, of the many series on Hulu, uh, on 1619 Project. Right. And they love it, right? I mean, they love the 1619 Project. The Wall Street Journal loves the 1619 Project because it's anti-government, right? Uh, and the argument is, that yeah, individual initiative is all that can save us, and the government just just attempts to make things worse. So that's where we are now. Oh, and can I say one more thing about that? It's another book reference. I'm sorry, but uh, some of your listeners may have encountered Richard Rothstein's you know, "The Color of Law," which is an argument about the role of the federal government in imposing housing segregation and and thus uh, the most lasting racial inequality. Well, a guy named Gene Slater, who was a longtime housing um, activist and functionary, just published a book a couple of years ago called uh, Freedom to Discriminate, which puts, uh, uh, and I'll say this, like the Rothstein book is like nuts, partly because he's a lawyer and he does arguments the way that lawyers do them. So he argues that housing segregation was unconstitutional even when it wasn't, right? Um, so he goes back and forth between uh, the moral and the legal. Slater shows meticulously how it was the real estate industry in the mm-hmm. early 20th century that created the idea of the neighborhood and created neighborhood segmentation by race, class, and other categories because it was useful for them uh, you know, for financial reasons, right? Um, you know, not just because they were insane bigots, so a lot of them were. And they continued to fight it uh, until well after the 1968 fair housing law was was passed. But again, well, the race uh, the race reductionist uh, you know, Afro pessimist kind of narrative can't help you to make sense of how these things happened. Certainly can't can't help to orient a way to try to overcome them. Right. Yeah. So, um, no, thanks for that. So basically, you know, sometimes people will will push back on us for talking about this stuff and kind of ask, like, why do we need to focus on this so much? Why do we need to talk about this so much? And there's a lot of reasons for it. Um, but one is that this discourse, this identitarian, like, race reductionist way of thinking that we've been talking about is so um, good at undermining solidarity. And you have described it as, like, antagonistic to the possibility of a solid solidaristic left. 
So can you just talk to us about solidarity? Like, because I feel like we've kind of lost the word. It's like people don't even really know what solidarity is and what it's supposed to do. So what is solidarity? Why is it important? And why is this um, this uh, this discourse that we're talking about undermining solidarity? Oh yeah, that's that, that. Yeah, that's another very important question. I mean, to put it simply, uh, the principle of solidarity, as it comes out of the labor movement, is boiled boiled down to one slogan, which is that an injury to one is an injury to all, and it's not just like a moralistic thing. You know what I mean? I mean, it's not. Well, it's not like just the province of the Catholic worker left, but it's it's based on a very pragmatic understanding, right? And what that pragmatic understanding comes down to is that I need to understand, or is that I, or solidarity is when I understand that your concerns are, are as important to me as my concerns. Mm-hmm. Not because I'm trying to go to heaven, but because I'm trying to win. Right. Because then my concerns will be as important to you as your concerns. And that's how we broaden the base and have an actual movement. And I gotta tell you, I've been saying for more than 30 years now that I do not understand how it is we're ever supposed to get to solidarity if the first thing we have to do when we come together is to point out and acknowledge how we differ. Mm-hmm. Right? That just seems exactly ass backwards. Like it's, it's like saying, all right, well, so I'm in Philadelphia, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm gonna go to Boston. But but I'm going to start out by heading south. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, but why? But, but you really can't can't do it. And I mean, it's it's kind of interesting. I mean, um, it's sort of easy to romanticize the right, but they they understand you know, the Leninist foundation of politics a, a lot better than. Than leftists do, um, and like so. Going back to the Reagan coalition, or, or even Trump, right? Uh, Trump, Trump's even more extreme. Yeah, there's all kinds of crazy uh, holy rollers and dangerous fascists there. Um, but why do they support McConnell? Or um, who's another one? Um, McCarthy, right? To whatever extent they do, or the Kochs. Uh, because those are people who, by and large, don't don't really give a shit about moral issues or about, you know, fetuses or or any of that stuff, right? Or Jesus. But but they do understand that they're that the core right-wing political agenda. Um, is not a majoritarian agenda, right? The fact that they just got exposed to the plans for going after Social Security and Medicare here mm-hmm. show that, right? They want to do everything else. They want to bust, bust unions, everything else. But for them, the identity st- or the, the culture war stuff mm-hmm. is, is like a sop that, that, that they can toss to the rubes or worse, um, you Take advantage of people's, um, you know, legitimate, but or understandable, but like misguided fears and anxieties. Right. Push them off, chasing at 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 windmills or at scapegoats. Right. 
And as I was saying to a guy on the same podcast I was just on, yeah, uh, well, but the thing is that they don't have to do it forever, right? Like they, they just have to do it till they, well, they already have control of the judiciary, right? And and they, they just have to work this, this flim plan till they can get control of both houses of Congress and the executive branch. And then they can impose whatever the hell they want. And they've made clear that none of them has any commitment to any kind of procedural I mean, democracy. Mm-hmm. So that's all that kind of stands between us and I think the imposition of a full-on authoritarian state in the U.S. Look, like a couple of months before the 2020 election, I was seriously contacting friends of mine up, up on your side of the border um, to get some particulars about uh, uh, what I would have to do to be able to under it. Yeah. Because if Trump won and, and if they got Congress, there's, there, there'd be hell to pay down here. Um, I was thinking about, you know, you mentioned the the summer of the murder of George Floyd and everything that came out of that. And I was thinking about how that situation could have gone so differently if an approach of solidarity had been taken, because I remember, I don't even remember the man's name, but there was a white man who was also killed by the police in a similar way, like, I think if not in the same city, like close by and within the same month. And there's tons of people, you know, killed by the police. Also, George Floyd was, you know, living in poverty, like he didn't have money. Um, and he was being, you know, profiled because he was uh, like a poor guy. He looks sketchy. And um, also the the white guy who got killed was a similar situation. And like this could have been an opportunity to obviously talk about police violence in general towards you know, poor and working people who are trying to, you know, make ends meet around here living in poverty. But instead it got turned into this other thing, which like had the opposite effect in terms of building solidarity. Well, no, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's another important point. I mean, like I I point out often that, yeah, all right. The black Yale educated or credentialed um, stockbroker Mm-hmm. is statistically more likely to be jacked up by the police than his white counterpart. Mm-hmm. But he's also statistically much less likely to be jacked up by the police than anybody who lives in what one of those zip codes that's targeted for hyper-police. Right. Right? Yeah. Like the race. And that's part of the problem. Well, and that kind of answers the, the question, why, why do we miss this opportunity? It's because this is a race reductionist discourse is a class driven political discourse and it hinges on um, on uh, an upper status POCs basically uh, appropriating. I don't like that word, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, the, um, um, the exploitation and, and precariousness of poor people as part of making a claim that, well, uh, Beyonce is not getting one of the top three Grammys, uh, despite the fact that she got four, four others, is like the same thing as Breonna Taylor being got in her bed. I mean, what uh, people don't say that, but through the chain of associations, that's what the political rhetoric does. Yeah. 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 I mean, you're right. I mean, and when you look at, at, 
cases. I mean, there's this guy, I don't know if you ever saw this case, a guy named Daniel Shaver, who was um, a, uh, a an exterminator in Arizona, who was in a motel, and somebody uh, reported seeing him with a gun. And in fact, it was one of his extermination tools. Right. And the cop, this was like horrible. I mean, you can find a video if you have a stomach for it. Basically, mentally tortures him, having him crawl up along the carpet with giving him contradictory instructions, just like what happened to Tyree, what's his name? Uh, and happens like often enough. And, and, and then shot him four or five times and killed him. Uh, now, I don't think he was charged. The cop was charged. And the victim was white. I mean, yeah, I mean, stuff like this happens to white people too, right? I mean, and yeah, you're right. I mean, there, there's there's an opportunity for a solidaristic response that raises the fundamental questions about the function of police under neoliberalism, basically, mm -hmm. right? In the suppressing disposable or marginal populations that, God forbid, could actually lead toward building the right. kind of alliance that contains them. And that's another reason that I argue that this is uh, neoliberalism's version of a left. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm, yeah, I'm having so many thoughts about what you're saying, you know, but it's, I mean, it's so true, like, and especially like, you know, obviously the police in Canada have like many like problems with the way that they operate, you know, and their budgets are bloated and everything like that. But like, from from outside of the United States, like looking at what goes on in the United States with the police there, you know, it's like absolutely fucking insane. Like somebody, somebody sent me a video yesterday of like, it was like an apartment building in like Nashville, and there was like, like 89 police officers with like assault weapons and like cameras on their helmets and like full body armor and like tanks outside doing a drug bust for like and it, it ended up that they found like 30 grams of like crack you know it, it's like it's just like absolutely insane and they terrorized an entire apartment building right with like like you know 500 people living in it or whatever like presumably probably like about half of whom were like poor white people living in this like shitty apartment building in some like shitty part of uh some some town in the u.s you know and it's like yeah. these these police are an occupying army that that are you know just operating with like complete impunity and the people who are being subjected to that are everyone in the united states you know it's like and obviously there there's there's like big racial disparities in like who sort of like um gets gets targeted most but that doesn't mean that like this issue is not absolutely insane from from a perspective of like anyone looking at it from outside the u.s you know um i i saw a statistic that um the u.s spends significantly more on police and prisons than china's entire military budget <laughs> you know yeah. Yeah. um yeah i was having some other thoughts too you know it's interesting because you were you were talking about how uh, like how are we supposed to build solidarity when the first thing that we're supposed to do is uh, talk about how we differ one from another, you know, and we're, we're both in 12 step programs and okay. we, yeah. And we talk about this a lot, um, how like in 12 steps, like you're really encouraged to look for similarities between yourself and, and other people. Right. Because when they're talking, if the first thing you do is you say, well, I'm not like that, then like you can never absorb any messages. Right. It's impossible to build up like the, the similarities between you and other people that are necessary to um, start start internalizing some of the important lessons that you can learn in a, in a, in a 12 step meeting. Right. Um, yeah. But also, as you were talking, it was occurring to me that 
a big part of this brand of neoliberal identitarianism that we've been talking about is that people will play up the similarities between them and extremely oppressed and marginalized subsections of whatever identity they hold while downplaying similarities between them and like the most sort of powerful subsections of whatever identity they hold which is a really interesting thing when you think about it eh? because like there there is um a push to identify with um marginalized and oppressed people but only when it sort of like obscures your own class position yeah like what i'll just i'll just say one more thing about this before maybe we move on but one of the things that i've gotten in trouble for is people telling me that me talking about police violence or um you know taking part in that discussion is appropriation because i'm white and i shouldn't be having that conversation but in reality um i believe anyone should be able to talk about that regardless of their lived experience like it's a political issue but in truth my lived experience is that like i'm a formerly street involved alcoholic who has literally like woken up with like cops illegally entering my apartment and like trying to fight the cops off me while i was like actually naked sleeping in my bed you know right. because i was like poor person living with addiction and like those people experience a lot more police involvement in their lives right and so it's just funny because it's like but because I'm white that's like not my place yeah like people who have never been arrested (laughs) telling you that you're not allowed to talk about the police because you're white (laughs) yeah no it's crazy man Uh, yeah it's absolutely crazy but you hit the nail on the head about that too and also about how the uh appropriation Right, uh, rhetoric works, right? I mean, it, it's, yeah, I mean, it, well, and see, this is what um, a lot of the, you know, the heritage of slavery shit is all about too, right? Uh, but yeah, I mean, um, it's kind of understand, well, I wouldn't say it's understand, but people who, who want to do this kind of politics really depend well, insofar as as who you supposedly are is what authenticates your politics, right? Then, yeah, I mean, you could be McGill, Princeton, Harvard, right? But 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 if you can claim to be first generation college attendee, or I don't know what the hell else, or have a cousin Pookie like Obama claimed claimed to have, then like somehow you, you've got through racial memory. Right. right. You you can absorb the suffering and exploitation of other people. That's bullshit. Yeah, yeah. The the racial memory stuff is wild because I think it's it's been expanding more and more recently. Yeah, it is. This and I like to call it um race magic instead mm-hmm. of like race science, you know. Um, because it's just this like idea that like racial like memories are sort of like passing through, like people just like take the word epigenetics or run with it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's, oh, it's... Oh, and look, that's a really important point too, right? Um, because um, the idea of epigenetics was really nothing new among geneticists, right? Um, there's an understanding among many of them for a long time that. That, that the gene is dependent on its environment and its interaction with 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 its environment from the cell to the trees outside, right? Um, but um, uh, what's his name? Um, Nicholas Wade, who who was the science writer for the New York Times for a while, a good while, 
and was a, um, a race science type, right? He was a biodeterminist asshole. And I saw he did a column one day. This is more than a decade ago, but it was like his mea culpa for having put so much on DNA. And he it, it, he embraced um, he embraced the epigenetic argument lustily. But I remember um, in George Stockings' Race, Culture, and Evolution, um, which is a great book, uh, he, and he discussed um, Victorian race theory and the socio sociobiological in, indeterminate version of race theory that, that was influenced by the Lamarckian theory of evolution. Stocking argued that one of the things that anti-racists like Franz Boas had to do to attack race science was to debunk um, you know, the Lamarckian theory of inheritance because mm-hmm. it was slippery, right? Like you, you could go back and forth there, there, there was no real causal mechanism. And that's what people are doing with, with the epigenetic stuff now. And they in, invoke what are determinist arguments, right. right? But they claim it's something else because they gesture toward culture. There's so much bullshit out there. But, you know, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, Stephen Jay Gould said like, close to 40 years ago, that uh, probably was 40 years ago, that in moments of um, social generosity, right, when when left ideas have a kind of hegemony or or place, um, the nature of culture pendulum swings toward culture. Mm. In, in moments where uh, the reactionary ideas and, and sensibilities have, have swayed, then the pendulum swings swings toward nature, so that's kind of what we can expect. Right. Um, but that is a less fucked up and exasperating. Like I taught um, a race theory course um, as a grad seminar for probably twenty years, of longer than twenty years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's funny, students would come into it thinking, um, well, I mean, naturally enough, that there used to be benighted race science. And then because of Boas and UNESCO and Nazism, things got better. And it's kind of true on one level, but what they also come to see is that the inegalitarian arguments can't really be defeated through evidence or logic because they don't rest on evidence or, or on logic. They, they're rooted in an ontological understanding, right? a fundamental theory of being. Yeah. So if there's no evidence to support the claims, then then the racists think, well, we just don't have the evidence yet, or right. we'll get it eventually, or there's something out there that I just know to be true. Yeah. Uh, so they get depressed for a couple of weeks, uh, and and then they get in the fight again. So <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna shift gears a little bit here. Um, Although this conversation is super interesting and I wish we could just continue indefinitely, but maybe we'll have you on again sometime. Um, so yeah, on this podcast, we talk a lot about cancel culture, obviously. It's the the name of the podcast. It's in the name of the podcast. Um, and how the politics we've been discussing are enforced through this culture of like, you know, harassment, censorship, ideological conformity, exile, you know. Um, and we've frequently received a lot of pushback for citing your work. 
um, from people who frame you as problematic, you know, without seriously engaging with your ideas in any way. And we're wondering this is kind of a softball question, but what does it feel like to be, uh, you know, a serious intellectual who's making these like well-reasoned, well-thought-out arguments, and to be essentially like sh shouted down by zealots who don't even read your work? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, thanks for the question. Uh, <laughs> and I, and it's kind of a version of the question that my son asked me on a road trip, but um, you know, I mean, that's happened enough now. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> And, and frankly, I don't even want to talk to those people, right? Like, I'd rather spend more, more of my time talking to working people, right? mm. which is what I try to do. But I mean, um, yeah, because those, yeah, those conversations aren't productive. Um, but yeah, thanks for asking. But look, <laughs> I'll be honest, I mean, it's not, well, but I'm not um, a robot, right? What we stuff as. Some effect, and every now and then I have to hold back, or maybe not, and just to give it a good-hearted fuck you. Yeah, uh, I mean, I would, not... I would understand that, you know. And I think it's it's really frustrating to me because I just, whatever. Like, I also have a certain sense of of the millennial-led like identitarian bullshit that's going on also has no fucking respect for like its elders or like the people who have been around for longer and actually have some sense of like a longer history of political struggle you know and the fact that people can be so dismissive like I get shit for sharing your work all the time and people are just dismissive they'll just say oh well you know he's a class reductionist and like he doesn't care about racism and I'm like are you fucking kidding me like the the disrespect and I and and the the lack of actual engagement. I'm like, can you please let me know like what the thesis is in any of the many papers that you can easily find of his online? And people can't, but they've just heard something and are repeating it. And yeah, I mean, I just imagine. I know it's frustrating in general to to be treated that way, but to have spent your life doing this work and to have you know so much like well thought out, well argued, carefully explained, you know, arguments online, and then to be treated like that by a bunch of millennials. I just, it pisses well, me off. Yeah, it must be frustrating. <laughs> yeah, well, no. Yeah, look, I appreciate that, too. I'm going to say two things about that. One, one is that, well, three things. One is that, yeah, I mean, young people are like that. They tend to be assholes. Uh, I mean, we were, right? Uh, yeah, but millennials aren't even young anymore. We're like in our mid-30s. <laughs> but, but, but the difference was, like, when when we were... When my cohort was like young and just started smelling our own urine, right? We we were working in context where there were older yeah. seasoned activists who would tell us to get over ourselves. Yeah. Or sit down and shut the fuck up. And you internalize that. Or you're humble enough because you're trying to do something. You're trying to learn how to do something. When I first went down to Fayetteville, North Carolina on the GI organizing project. Uh, I was also working with uh, the Poor People's Organization in the city. And a couple of the leaders of the Poor People's Organization got an idea. Uh, you know, Fayetteville, North Carolina, for your listeners, is the home of Fort Bragg, which at that point was the largest military installation in the world, right? Uh, back and forth to Vietnam every other day. Uh, and a couple of the leaders of the Poor People's Organization got an idea that... Um, that they should petition um, the leadership of the 
post of Fort Bragg to um, dispatch the Army Corps of Engineers to pave the gravel streets in the Black Ghetto, basically, right? Um, so I'm just coming off campus organizing. I've been doing some labor stuff, but I'm basically coming on campus. And I'm hung up by this because my main mission down here is to help GIs who are trying to organize against the war, right? Which means against the military, right? And, uh, and it just seemed to me that FAPO, Fayetteville Area Poor People's Organization, going to uh, get the base to do community service by paving some streets would ultimately be counterproductive. Now, the reality was the, uh, the military probably wouldn't do it anyway. But I was hung up by this. I didn't know what to do, right? I'm like mm. 23 years old, right? So I called a friend of mine who, who was one of a guy who, who, who's a few years older who'd been out working for Congress. Friend of mine and kind of a, I wouldn't say a role model, but like, but, but, but a person I learned from at, as an organizer, uh, just to get his advice, ask him what what I should do. He was an asshole, so like after some talking back and forth, he he said, "I'm sure you'll do the right thing." And and of course, I had no idea what the right thing was, but 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 that's a culture that doesn't exist anymore. Mm. Right? Um, so that's one thing. Um, now I forgot what the other two things were. Hold on. <laughs> um, uh, they might, they might not. Uh, we'll see. If they do, I'll blur them out. Okay. No worries. Um. So you know, we've we've talked a lot oh, about. Oh, okay, wait, sorry. Go for yeah, it. Yeah. Oh yeah, I forgot the middle one, but 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 like in a way, this is the most important. one. What really does exercise me? Pardon me is when white people lecture me uh, about my not understanding the depth of racism in America. And that just makes me want to slap the piss out of somebody, basically, right? Because that's, talk about arrogance, right? Yeah. And that's, that, that's an arrogance that, that also probably deserves the label racist, right? I mean, and, and I sound just going through this like in another setting, but what happens is that when, you know, white people construct their um, notions of who the authentic blacks are. Mm -hmm. Well, that means that black people who don't fall into their stereotype of what the authentic blacks are are inauthentic. Yeah. And I don't know, it smells like racism to me, too. There was literally an article, I don't know who this guy was, but some article I, I came across once, and he was critiquing the work of three writers and I think it was uh, Walter Ben Michaels you right. and e either might have been like Ture your son or maybe it was like Cedric Johnson one of one of these guys um and basically it was like you oh, know yeah. it was a this this writer was critiquing the type of stuff that we are talking about race reductionism etc but he literally he was a white author and he was like I'm only going to argue directly with 
the ideas of Walter Ben Michaels because it's like not my place to argue with the black authors, even though he was wholesale dismissing your ideas. Um, But he wouldn't even show the basic respect of fucking engaging with those ideas. And I'm like, this is just fucking straight up racism. Like it literally is, but it's just being put in this new way that somehow it's not racism, but it like is the most overt example of racism, like to, for an author to be like, I'm only going to seriously engage with the white thinker. Like what? Yep. Hey, I tell you what, if you can find, find that and send me a a PDF or a link, I'll really. i send it to you. I'm sure (laughs) I can find it. Yeah. Um, you can, you can tell the guy off is really annoying. Um, but yeah, so we've talked a lot about how, you know, there is no left basically at this point, it's pretty bleak. Um, you know, this, identitarianism, neoliberal bullshit has taken over whatever scraps of the left are left. So we want to now just talk a little bit about where should we be heading? Like, what would a materialist left look like? What should listeners who want to do actual leftist organizing, you know, what should they be thinking about? What should they be doing? What direction should we be heading? Right. Well, those are the big questions, aren't they? Um, Yes. Yeah, I mean, look, there's, um, so so one thing I would suggest is, and I hate to do this because it's kind of a shitty plug, but check out um, the 11th uh, episode of Class Matters Podcast. Yes. .org, the conversation with Carl Rosen and Samir Santi, because we talk about questions like that a bit. I mean, as I said earlier, I mean, one it's not a virtue, but benefit of the moment is that you can turn almost anywhere, right? To start trying to organize. Uh, what well, I mean, union organizing obviously is important, right? Yeah. And 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 it's crucial, but not everybody's in a place where they can try to organize their workplace, for instance. But I think it's also important to kind of shift the focus of the social movements, right? From from whatever the hell they're doing, I don't know, to um, pursuit of social wage policy, right? Like um, um, a revitalization of the public sector, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, decommodified public goods, right? Like housing, education, right? Um, my friends in uh, Toronto for a number of years were, uh, you know, with the CLC, like we're trying to do this about public transportation. That, you know, decommodified public transit. Mm-hmm. And the reality about any of these projects like that, it, it was true about the single payer thing, uh, which a lot of people didn't quite understand, that you, you aren't going to win like any of those reforms um, simply by fighting for those reforms, right? Um, you can win five cents an hour by fighting for it. But you're not going to win uh, major transformations of social policy simply by fighting for the policies. But what? But but how you can win is insofar as fighting for the policies. It enables starting broader conversations with 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 working people about what what the country ought to look like. So when we were working with in uh, you know, South Carolina in 2020 uh, around uh, the Medicare for All, uh, we we worked mainly with, you know, grassroots, working class, 
mainly black people, right? Like we weren't part of the campaign, we were parallel to the campaign. We had no contacts with the campaign. But one of the things that we learned, well, well, of course, we learned, uh, which we expected, that once people understood single payer and how it related to the current system in the US, they loved single payer and couldn't understand why we didn't have it. And, and, and that's why in South Carolina, single payer won, even as Jim or, or, or as Biden beat, beat Bernie's ass, right? Um, mm -hmm. 52% of Democratic voters said that they would prefer a single payer. But the other thing we learned was among the people we worked with was that after a little while talking about this, people started thinking, well, if healthcare, if the profit motive ought to be taken out of healthcare, then why not take it out of education and transportation right. and, and housing? And that's how you build a movement, right? And I've come to the view that probably 95% of people in the U.S. who consider themselves leftists are really liberals and they don't know any better, right? So they think, so they have this kind of civics textbook approach to politics. If we can just elect more versions of right. AOs, right, we will have socialism. But, but I want to say one other thing, drawing, drawing on that South Carolina experience, that after... One of the things that came out of Bernie's campaign in 2020 was that it did, it, it didn't do this so much in 2016, but the 2020 campaign left little puddles or eddies of organizing, right, after the campaign, people who were committed to single payer or like other issues and had connections on the ground. And COVID-19 killed all of them, right? Right. right? They had an organizing plan for South Carolina. And I'm not adducing any conspiracy, but the combination of COVID and then George Floyd and the corporate opportunism that kind of swept in and got all yeah. that, uh, this kind of put the kibosh on, on, on whatever could come out of the Sanders movement. Um, yeah, you're so this is interesting that you're talking about all this because like you're you're not just a scholar right like you have been doing this organizing work for a super long time um can you tell us about the political organizing that you're doing these days like what kind of projects you're involved in uh well I mean, not a lot i mean like i've been trying where possible like i said you know dev jones douglas we do uh, you know work for trainings uh and and i do stuff like at the National Convention of the Teamsters National Black Caucus. Uh, I did two workshops and uh, a roundtable, and I've, and I've been doing and I've been try, trying to do as much of that kind of work as I can with rank and file unions. And that's basically it. I, mean, I don't care about you know the non-existent paper organizations or like the debates within the left or but I don't care about any of that stuff. I mean. Uh, um, um, I felt a little bad, bad about it afterwards, but on this last podcast I was on, somebody asked in the chat um, what I think about the prospects for creating uh, a socialist in intelligentsia like in the U.S. And before thinking, I just snapped. I couldn't, uh, I could not just give less of a shit about the development of the socialist intelligentsia. Uh, and it's like, well, during the years that we 
I mean, they did the Labor Party, but I mean, lefties were always coming up to us with I mean, recommendations for how we should go about trying to organize the left. And we kept saying, but we're not trying to organize the left. The left is already organized and meaningless. Right? We're trying to organize workers. Right? And and that's what the project is like for all of us. And one of the things that we did, I want to say this too, is um, that so there's a lot of you know um, um, computer bytes being wasted, I guess, on debates around DSA and Jackman and well, whatever about what to think about the professional managerial classes or what to think about the composition of the working class and this and the other. Um, and my approach to that has been always, and this is consistent with our labor party practice too, which is we want, we operate with an expansive notion of who the working class is. Mm -hmm. And that's everybody who has to work for a living or is expected to work for a living. Uh, and people who don't identify with workers aren't gonna come to us. Um, a lot of people who don't necessarily identify as workers, but who probably ought to, right. may be persuaded to come to us. Yeah. And I, like a lot of my friends and comrades, like in a labor movement, am on a war path against this notion of the middle class, right? Because that's one of the things, it, it, it's a post-World War II invention that includes, I don't know, a steel worker with, um, with, with a little bungalow, right? And and the plant manager, right, with over the mansion, as yeah. as as being part of the middle class, and the whole point of it was to make the working class disappear mm -hmm. from from public discussion. Um, so, so 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 I'm on a rampage against the idea of the middle class because probably seventy to eighty percent of the middle class are 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 the working class people with mortgages. Yeah, right? totally. And, and we need to reclaim that as part of who we are, who our constituency is. And, and as far as the professional managerial strategy go, I got to figure it out. Uh, the sections of the PMC, the broad PMC that come our way are the good ones. The ones that side, side of the ruling class are the bad ones. <laughs> well, I mean, honestly though, because it's like the reason like the PMC are siding with the ruling class is because they're being convinced that like their interests can be aligned with that. And, and, if we can convince them that it makes more sense to align with us, you know, yeah, I think that, yeah, right? I think that we can, I think that we shouldn't be turning them into the enemies. I think we should be trying to bring them over. And like, you know, these days, like millennials, it's like millennials can't get a house. Like right. the, the sort of ideas of what it meant to be middle-class that came from the generation before us that, you know, we kind of grew up believing that like, you know, we'd have one job for the rest of our lives. And if we w worked hard, right. we would, we'd be able to get a house. It's like, no, nobody can get a house. Like, right. so even people who are technically like doing okay and are like, quote unquote, like middle-class are, are not actually getting, you know, the benefits of what we used to consider the middle-class life. So I think it's a well, great. And what happens is like, and like this is like natural, right? Mm -hmm. it's, but it's a natural expression of the material roots of culture, right? So um, modalities of status and aspiration emerge and take shape and become consolidated um, around the new material constraints, right? So, so if you have a stratum of people, young people for whom buying a house 
is no longer thinkable, yeah, then then other expressions, you know, maybe more transitory, but certainly less expensive, um, of well-being, right, will emerge and take shape and be reinforced. Uh, and I, I mean, this is another problem with the culture thing, right? As far as I'm concerned, I mean, culture is whatever, right? I mean, um, so when I've been in other parts of the world, and, and I haven't been all all over, I've, well, I've mainly been to what my son calls a fun spots like Lebanon and Syria and Jordan, Cuba, uh, Brazil and Ireland, <laughs> but but. Uh, um, but when I'm in other parts of the world, people eat different shit and they listen to different shit. Uh, it's less and less the case, but still, they think some different stuff. But the universal experience is either having to get up and go to work or wishing you had a job to get up and go to. Mm -hmm. And that's the foundation on which we can build what, what we need. There's, uh, I'm very close to um, the casino workers local in Atlantic City, that's Unite Here Local 54. And in 2016, I think it was, yeah, um, the Taj, Trump Taj Mahal and um, um, I'm blocking the other casino, uh, struck. The membership of this local is like, what well, I was joking with the president a few weeks ago, that, that that's like a whaling ship in the 1850s. People are from all over the world, right? Like, right in this local. And we go to rallies, and people are speaking in languages that were unintelligible to everybody else. But everybody could sense the spirit, and were cheering, and 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 the solidarity was was moving, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and but to the extent that they knew that the odds were were, were stacked against them in in the strike, um, Carl Icahn, the uh, um, the, uh, the notorious corporate raider and friend of Trump had 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 bought the casino out of bankruptcy court and had canceled pension and health care benefits. Um, and the workers knew the odds were long, but rank and file workers were saying, look, well, we're striking part because we hate this asset, right? Uh, but also because it, it, it took... 20 years of organizing and fighting in the casino industry, the hospitality industry, to get decent wage and, uh, and benefit standards for the local economy. And the workers were actually saying, we're fighting for everybody else in Atlantic City because if Icon's able to get away with this, then the rest of the casino operators are going to be able to get away with it. And it's not like they were making fabulous money, but but with the idea of a decent wage right, for housekeepers and and other back of the house personnel, and the stability of benefits and pension had in fact in, enabled people to buy houses, to send their kids to school mm -hmm. and whatnot. And, and that's meant so much for Atlantic City, which is a small, poor, poor city. And like these workers were committed enough to class consciousness that they were willing, to lead this charge against Icon, to, to make him bleed so much, right? To beat them that like, nobody else will try it out. And, and that's what we can do, but you can only do it if you built a union and built the solidarity first. Mm -hmm. you can't 
And you certainly can't can't do it by coming in like consistently going around a room and point out all the ways that we differ. Absolutely. So just as we wrap up, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about your new book, because I know that you just recently had a new book come out. Um, so maybe just tell the listeners a bit about that. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, the book is called uh, The South Jim Crow and Its Afterlives. And I've been insisting that it's not a memoir, uh, mainly because it's not. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, but it was the outgrowth of conversations that I had over a number of years with a couple of friends of mine, one a few years older, uh, the other a few years younger, yeah, out of which we came to recognize that our general cohort would, would be the last people left alive with any direct uh, recollection of what the segregation era was, was like in the South. So what I try to do in the book is to present a picture of what the regime was like at the everyday level, how people lived it. Um, and it's not like oppression porn, which a lot of stuff is, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and I also want to historicize, we talk about how the system differed in different places and different contexts when it came into existence, because most people in the US, and I imagine elsewhere too, just think of Black American history as like a blur right. of uh, bad old timey times from slavery through Reconstruction, Jim Crow to the Civil Rights Act, or maybe even since when you get all the just like Jim, Jim Crow stuff. Um, so I wanted to get to communicate that it was first of all a structured social order that that had uh, a specific um, foundation and origin that came after the that was part of a reimposition of, of planter merchant capitalist class rule after the defeat of the interracial populist uprising in the 1890s. It lasted about you know, not much more than 60 years, right? Um, and it was a system that was imposed on whites as well as it was on blacks, and I want to get that across. Mm -hmm. So, and then I try to examine uh, you know, the new forms and institutions and patterns of class relations that emerged out of that system and breaking down. And that's the book. It's Amazing. A, yeah, it's Verso. A lot of people like it. So I encourage everybody to buy it. Yeah, I'm excited to read it. Um, it's definitely on my reading list. Okay, Adolf. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on the pod. It's honestly been just really special for us because we love your work so much. So thank you for being here. Oh, thank you. It's been great for me too. So I've had a lot of fun and uh, you know, feel free to, uh, you know, to reach out to me whenever. Yeah, absolutely. We'd love to have you back on in the future. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. So thanks a lot. All right. Take care.